Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here today. Our key scripture today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I don't know if you have ever spent much time putting things together. Um, I really love putting things together, actually. Uh, I love building Lego sets. Lego sets are fun. Uh, I love putting furniture together, which I know is kind of a weird thing, but uh, I have spent a lot of hours in my lifetime putting together uh, furniture. And, you know, we used to go to Ikea all the time, and everything from Ikea comes in a box, and you got to take it home and put it all together. And there's nothing quite like that of, of bringing something home and, and, you know, getting all the pieces out and, and figuring out how this thing is going to turn into a rough, uh, roughly similar something that you saw in the store. Uh, and with at least IKEA instructions for putting this furniture together, they used to have um, pictures and then words describing to you what it is so that you have both of these things. And now they just have pictures without any uh, verbal description of what it is that you're supposed to do. So the, the probability that you're going to make a mistake somewhere along the line is pretty high uh, with those kinds of things. Um, there have been a few times, so if, if you've done this before, if you've put together something, there have been a few times where I put something together and I've ended up with extra pieces. <laughs> now, you may not know this, but this is psychological warfare that is put on you from the store itself because here's what they do. They actually give you extra pieces. Lego does it too. Uh, they give you extra pieces, but they don't tell you that they're extra pieces. So uh, you get to the end, and you have these things left over. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's that big a deal if you have some pieces left over. Like if it's this small, like, plastic cap that's supposed to cover something, you can't find what it is that it's supposed to cover. It's like no big deal. But let's just say it's a bolt that's about that long. Right? Well, all of a sudden, you worry a little bit. Like, what did I miss that is going to keep this thing together? and keep it from crushing my children, right? <laughs> when we moved uh, here, we have this, we have these, uh, Nietzsche and I have this, this chair thing that rocks back and forth. And when we moved this thing, it's really heavy. And when we moved it out of our house in Antioch, I came back into the house and there was such a bolt sitting on the ground about this long. And we moved the chairs into the house and you could tell that something was off with it, but I could not figure out for the life of me where this bolt goes. Uh, so I did what any responsible man would do, and I threw it away. No, <laughs> I put it in a, in a thing that holds all the extra pieces that, you know, you don't know where they go. And so now these chairs, they do rock backward and forward, but they also slightly rock side to side <laughs> if you're in them. But the problem was I knew this bolt was important, but... I didn't know where it went, and no amount of searching and looking was going to fix that. 
What's the point? The point is, it would be really easy for us to overlook the importance of what seems like one really small piece. I mean, considering how big these chairs are or how big that piece of furniture is you're building, the lack of one little metal rod doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal. But it can make all the difference and this thing holding up and doing what it's supposed to do. One small piece, seemingly small piece, may be crucial to the whole thing working like it should. And, you know, it occurs to me that maybe before we started doing these studies, when we've read this verse from 2 Corinthians, if you've ever read it before or heard about it, there are a lot of things we agree with. Now, it is God who makes us stand firm. Yes! And he makes us stand firm in Christ. Jesus! Yes! We're for that! And he said, I still have ownership in us, put a spirit in our hearts to seal us till the day, blah, blah, blah. Right? Because we have, as we've said so many times, uh, grown up in, in the church, and we have really put all this emphasis on God and all this emphasis on Jesus, and then we have skipped over the part of the spirit. And when we have done that, we have taken this really crucial bolt and said, hmm, I don't know where it goes. So I'm going to put it in the coffee can with the other stuff. And maybe I'll figure out at some point where this goes. But Paul here in 2 Corinthians, he says it is God who both, let me just read it instead of trying to paraphrase it. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and Put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When Paul looks at the role of the spirit in our lives, he says that the spirit does so many things. He's talked about so many things, but get what he says here. That the spirit is part of God putting his seal of ownership on us. The spirit is a deposit in us, And the spirit in us is what tells us that God is going to do what he said he is going to do. That God is actually going to save us, give us the grace and forgiveness we need, and have a life so that we can have a life with him. It is the spirit that seals all of that up and keeps us until the day that Jesus returns and keeps us till the day that Jesus returns. I'm going to say this probably to you every week, but we cannot overstate the importance of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We cannot overstate it. We cannot say enough about it and what the Spirit does and how he moves and works in us. But most of all, aren't you grateful that God gave us a piece of himself to hold us until we are with him again. All right. So, what have we learned so far? That the Holy Spirit is a thing, right? Like, and I don't mean a thing like in a thing. I mean, like, it's a thing for us. Uh, 
we accept that the Holy Spirit plays an active role in our lives. We accept that God has made the Holy Spirit part of his plan uh, for us. And we have started to explore all of the different ways that uh, the Spirit moves and works. Last week we talked about uh, how the Spirit does a lot more than we have given him credit for doing. And I apologize to you, uh, last week's sermon uh, was recorded, but I didn't hit the right button on the CD player because uh, we recorded it onto a CD, and so uh, it, it's gone. It is. Um, but Wayne remembers the whole thing, <laughs> front to back, so if you have any questions, uh, you can ask him about that. Uh, but we talked about how the Holy Spirit does a lot more than we give it credit for doing. So, uh, yes, there are spiritual gifts that come with the Holy Spirit, and yes, it does all these things that Jesus talked about, but one of the most interesting things to me, and I don't know if this was kind of, you know, resonated with you as well, is, is how the Holy Spirit is tied into our salvation, that it is actually a part of the salvation process, and that, that shouldn't be a huge surprise, shouldn't have been a big surprise to me, um, because when we, we've taught and preached and that when you are baptized, you are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it just goes to show, I think, at least for me, how, how sometimes words or phrases or ideas just become um, like white noise in my head, you know? And I don't even know that I'm ignoring it until I find out that I am. Um, so we, we discovered that um, the Holy Spirit, because in particular, in, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, it helps us to know the thoughts of God. And it makes sense, right? Because are we capable of understanding God on our own? No, like he's too big. He's too much like God, and I am too much not <laughs> like God. Uh, so he's too big for us to understand. And so Paul made the point that, you know, only a, a person really only knows their own thoughts. And then he goes on to say, only God's spirit can know the mind of God. And so the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and it helps us to know the mind of God. Why? Because it's from God. And it helps us to understand things that we would never be able to understand on our own. Uh, and then it takes part in our salvation. And we saw part of that this morning in the scripture that we read from 2 Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit is part of what God has done to, to seal us, to hold on to us until uh, the day that Jesus returns again. And the Spirit, because it lives inside of us, is able to change us and make us into something different, to really transform us in a way that we could not do on our own. But this morning, I want us to backtrack a little bit to where we were, uh, I guess it would have been two weeks ago. Um, so we talked about the fruit of the Spirit two weeks ago. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen here behind me as well. Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if you remember, um, before this passage, Paul has gone off listing all the things of the flesh and all the different kinds of things that people do when they are not living by the Spirit. And then he says, in contrast, all those things that people who are not living by the Spirit, those things with these things. This is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And verse 25, he says, we live by the Spirit, so let us keep in touch, keep in step with the Spirit. So these fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, these are the signs, okay, that the Spirit is active and moving inside of us. All of these things are the signs that the Spirit is acting and moving inside of us, and this is the essential transformational work that he does in our lives, which tells us that when we have focused on spiritual gifts, such as prophesying and speaking in tongues and healing, that we're kind of missing the point. Because Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is prophecy or speaking in tongues or translating tongues or any of those things. Instead, he lists the stuff. So uh, I have an activity for you to participate in this morning. Uh, I invite you to. You certainly don't have to, which if you don't want to, you can just sit there and stare at me, which is fine. Um, Around the room this morning, we have the fruits of the Spirit listed. Uh, There are four on this wall, four on this wall, and one in the back. Uh, I believe that's kindness in the back. Um, So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's what I would like to invite you to do. Okay, you can do this one of two ways. There's my my preferred way would be for you to think about these different fruits of the Spirit, and I want you to think about which one do you feel like is the strongest fruit in your life. The, which one of these things, these fruits of the Spirit, do you feel like is most evident in your life? And then I want you to go stand by that fruit. Now, again, if you'd rather just stay in your seat, uh, you are welcome to do that and just go through the exercise mentally because you can pick them that way. But for those of you who are willing to get up, think about which one of these is most evident in your life and go stand by that fruit. Ready, Go. Yes, yeah, you can sit down. Uh, Thank you for playing along. I appreciate it. Yeah, Virgil's talking. Okay, so... um, I think this, uh, I don't know, maybe this exercise was, was somewhat uh, informative to you. Uh, maybe you had some good conversations, I hope. Uh, I, it's really, it's fascinating to me. Um, but I think it also, one of the reasons I had you do this is that I believe that it sort of reflects how we tend to look at um, any sort of list in the Bible. Now, let me, let me get to that. We look at the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and we do do sort of view things this way. Well, here's something, you know, I'm pretty good on this one. 
you know, I need help on this one. This one is an area of strength. This one's an area of weakness. And when we tend to view things like that, and so maybe you're different than me, so let me just, when when I view things like that, and particularly when I identify an area of weakness, my take on what I need to do in that area is work harder to get better at whatever it is. Does that sound right? So if, for example, I feel like an area of weakness is peace, right? I want to work harder to have more peace. Now, maybe some of you are already seeing a flaw in that thinking, right? But it does occur to me that when we have looked at this list of things in Galatians chapter 5, we have looked at them as if they are things that we do or accomplish. They are things that we do or accomplish. Now, I want to re-emphasize something that is really important, and that is this. These fruits are not fruits of you. Um, but the fruit of Mike is, no, it doesn't say that, right? Instead, it says it's the fruit of what? Which means that if these things are the fruit of the Spirit, what is going to make them happen in your life? The fruit of the Spirit is not something you produce. In the sense that you are making it happen. We do not need to think of the fruits of the Spirit as something that we simply do or attributes that we work really hard to cultivate. There is value in that. And I, in particular, I I appreciate that just kind of in what I heard in parts of it from all around the room, well, I think I really like... I'm good at this in, in this way and this reason, and I, I think this is why I struggle with this. Like, truthfully, we do know, right, which of these areas are areas of weakness in us, and which of the ones are maybe our greatest struggle if we were to categorize the fruit. But when we do those kinds of things and look at it that way, some that does have some value. We do need to be aware of the areas of our lives that are not maybe reflecting the nature of what God has intended. But no amount of my effort is going to bring me more peace. I cannot work my way to greater peace. I cannot accomplish my way to greater peace. Like, it doesn't even make sense. which is why these things are not fruits of me or you. They are fruits of the Spirit, which means that when we are living in step with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, staying in step with the Spirit, what will happen? These things will be produced in us 
by the work of God and will show themselves in our lives. You with me? Okay. Why do we need to make that distinction? It is not just a matter of our effort and putting our effort in the right place or keeping these things straight. There's something much bigger than that that's going on. And the first fruit is actually the best example of this. The first fruit that Paul lists is love. Now, here's why love is such a great example. God loves in a different way than we do. God loves in a different way than we do. Now, this is not a shocking statement. It's, it's something that we have heard a lot, and we know this, that God loves in a different way than we do. But I want you to, let's see if we can wrap our minds around this a little bit to say that when, when we talk about what it means to be loving, we mean something different than what God means when he talks about what it means to be loving. Now, we think we're saying the same thing. But really, we're not. Why? Because God's love is frankly different than our love, and it is difficult for us to wrap our minds around what that means. So let's start by talking about what our love is like before we contrast it to God's. Love within our society and culture feels like something that we have very little control over. Just think about some of the terminology that we use societally when we talk about love. I fell in love. Well, what does that insinuate? that you were just walking around minding your own business and all of a sudden a hole opened up in front of you and you fell into it. it that, that very, think about it, that very term which we use so often within our culture gives the implication that love is something that happens to us kind of by accident. I fell in love. Um, and then we also fall out of love. So we don't just fall in love, we also fall out of love. Meaning that as accidentally as we may have gotten into something, we may have accidentally gotten out of it as well. But we know, well, Bryce, come on, you're taking this example a little bit far. You're right, I'm taking it a little bit far. So then what is it that we do and what does love look like? Well, we know that when, most often, if we've fallen in love, there have been circumstances or sets of things that have happened to bring us to that space of love, right? Like, it's not like, you know, this, the, the whole idea of love at first sight, seeing someone across a crowded room, right? Okay, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But... but 
we understand that when we fall in love with someone, that there are things that have happened that have created love. And then we also understand that when we have fallen out of love, there are things that have happened to break down our sense of what love is within that relationship, right? Okay, so now things are not by accident. There is a causality to both. Something happened, this, this, this happened, and boom, love. But then this, this has happened, and bang, out of love, right? Right? Okay, so, so we understand these things. And, and we have a certain set of criteria that are met by us follow, falling in love. So um, this person just really respects me and sees who I am and knows me. This person has been there through this, this, and that, and this, this, and that, you know. And okay, that's great. And then, well, this person doesn't listen to me anymore. Uh, they're mean to me, and, you know, they do all these things, and they just don't respect me, and they don't know me, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we see how, like, the things that make us fall in love stand against the things that make us fall out in love. But, Bryce, it's even more complicated than that, right? Because... We use the word love too liberally. Um, I love a movie. I love certain kinds of food. You know, I love my children. Now, does all of that mean the same thing? No. And so we, we know then that there's this falling in love and falling out of love. And then we know that love also means like a strong affinity for something, okay? Uh, and then we also know that there are categories of things that push the envelope in terms of deepening something. So my, it's obvious, right? When I say I love pizza, I don't mean the same thing as when I say I love Zeke. But if Zeke is holding pizza, look out. Right? I, I know, right? It's, uh, you don't mean the same thing, and, and I know, I, I, I don't mean the same thing. Now, there are a lot of things that are really good about us when we are loving people. And let me just say this, because this, this is an important distinction for us to make, all right? You don't have to know the love of God to be loving, based on the standards that we have. You don't have to. There are a lot of good people that love others effectively that don't believe in God at all. Okay? So store that away for a minute. We are capable of meaningful love. And I think of relationships like parents and children or uh, hopefully a lot of marriages or sometimes, you know, sibling relationships or all of these things. But this is what's challenging for these examples is that as much as, as, much as we know that these kinds of relationships and even just deep, deep friendships, you know, I've had one of my best friends has been my friend since I was in fourth grade. And we are still, you know, I'm 43 years old, and one of my best friends I met in fourth grade. Like, that's, that's a little bit rare. And, and he is an incredible friend. Um, so e even in these things, we have these moments 
that are so good and so deep and so meaningful. But the problem with lifting up these things as examples is that um, as much as we can say, like, here are the heights of this kind of, you know, a parent-child relationship or a sibling relationship or a marriage, we also know too many examples of parents and children that don't speak to each other or marriages that are broken apart or brothers and sisters who fight constantly. I mean, so we see all of these different things happening around us. Now, so there are good things. There's a lot of good things. But I believe that at the core of our human brand of love is a desire for something in return. This is the fatal flaw of human love, is the desire for something in return. You can disagree with me on this, but as I tell you often, you can disagree with me, but you're wrong. Thank you. And we don't really want to admit this, um, but I, I, I think it's there. And just to put it in its most simple terms, if we are going to love someone else, what do we want? We want to be loved in return. Um, but there's more to it than that, too, because a, a core human value is respect or self-worth. Um, we want to be respected, and we believe that we are worthy of respect. So if we are going to love someone, we expect that person first in the falling in love stage or even relationship stage. Falling in love, covering a lot of area, not just romance here. We expect that person to, and we wouldn't say it this way, but we expect this person to prove themselves worthy of our love, i.e., something has happened that has created this feeling in us. And when we are looking for the person, for example, that we are going to tie our lives to and marry, what are we looking for? Well, someone who will treat us right, who will treat us with kindness and respect and make us feel important. And honestly, like, why wouldn't we want that and look for that? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to look for that. And when things don't work out, you know, what do we say? Well, they, you know, they didn't know me. They didn't understand me. Um, I'm too good for them. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> you know, some, there's always been the, it's, it's not you, it's me. Um, I'm more fond of the, it's not me, it's you. Um, <clears throat> so if we are going to love, we expect certain things in return. We expect reciprocation. I am being giving, I am being generous, I am pouring myself into you, and I want you to pour yourself back into me. Maybe the best example of this, probably for most of us, is a friendship that was deep and meaningful and meant something. But I've had a lot of friendships where I ended up feeling like I was pouring myself into someone and they were not. Like, uh, the way they put it at uh, Jed's Elementary School last year was you could be a bucket dipper or a bucket filler. So you could fill someone's bucket or you could take out of their bucket. And I've had friendships where I felt like I was filling, 
but the other person was dipping. Right? All of us have had those experiences. And when we find ourselves in friendships or relationships where we are giving and we're not, we feel like we're not giving something back, then what happens? We fall out of, which tells us something important. Okay? Now, our brand of love, as much as we don't want to admit it, is conditional. It is. It is conditional. Now, we see that in the way that we approach the disillusion of relationships. All right? Maybe you have said or thought or been in a conversation with someone who has said or thought I'm not suggesting you can read minds, but I still love them, but, yeah? You ever been there? I still love them, but they make me feel terrible about myself. So, I still love them, but they've done this and this and this to me, and so I just can't. I I still love them, but they did this and that, and I just... I mean, and we have oftentimes walked away from relationships that we have claimed at one time were loving relationships out of self-preservation. Now, don't jump to the extreme, okay? Like, should abuse people stay? That's not what we're talking about, all right? Everybody clear on that? We are not talking about abuse people in relationships. Got it? Good. But what I, we are talking about is, even in some of our most like, deep and meaningful relationships, we have stopped them. Because our love is conditional. And we have reached a limit, whatever that limit is, with that person or situation, scenario, whatever, we have reached a limit that we feel like we cannot cross this barrier or I cannot allow this to be pushing more. And so we choose self-preservation over staying in relationship with someone. Right? Now, understand something, okay? I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's what we do. And that's why I don't want to go down the road of abusive relationships because I have counseled people to remove themselves from situations. But we do make decisions about relationships based on how we are treated and what we're getting in return. And I can't tell you how many times a Christian has told me, oh, I love that person, I just don't like them. Okay, And when we feel we are mistreated, we take action. There's even a very popular Christian program that helps you draw boundaries around relationships in which you feel you are being taken advantage. And woe to the person that we actively (laughs) stop loving. 
We're even uh, really good at deciding how legitimate an apology is. I don't know if you feel as sorry as I think you should feel. There was a, a tough situation that we went through in a, at, our, at our church and some feelings were hurt by the, some things that were going on and someone approached me after church and said, you know, I've been praying about this and um, God says that, God has told me that I, I can still love this person but I don't have to forgive them right now. And I said, cool. <laughs> you sure about that? But this gets down to the bottom of why human love is so complicated. It centers around our feelings. How we feel. How someone makes us feel. I put that in quotes because I have a whole different thing about that. <laughs> how a situation turned out or what something, I mean, think about that whole, if we're going back to romance, Think about how much the start of a romance is based on how something makes you feel. I feel good. I feel valued. I feel accepted. I feel known. But you know as well as I do, the problem with basing something on feelings is our feelings change. Sometimes for reasons we can explain and sometimes for reasons we can't. And I know that I probably sound very cynical and critical, which I don't mean to. Um, but we live in a culture where in secular counseling today, for example, if you go to secular counseling, and this is not across the board, but I've heard it enough. If you go to secular counseling for marriage uh, support, um, they will not hesitate to tell you to leave your marriage. They won't. Uh, a couple, I was doing their 25th wedding anniversary, and they were just having some issues within that 24th year of getting some things together, and they, they went to marriage counseling, and, and so I asked them, you know, how, how'd it go? How was it? And they said, first thing, they told us to get divorced. <laughs> I was like, oh, that seems like bad advice. But this is what our love can be like. Now, the whole point of this conversation is what? Our love is different from God's love. Our love is different from God's love. So how is it different from God's love? There are different words that are used in the Bible to talk about love, and almost every definition or situation of love has its own word so that you know instantly what the writer meant. It's one of the great things about some of these other languages um, that you don't have to guess what kind of love they're talking about. So there's no confusion between like the love between a husband and his wife and the love of pizza. All right. They have different words for those things. And the word that is used to describe the love of God most often in the New Testament is the word agape. Uh, it differs greatly from many of the other kinds of love that we see, but here's what I want you to understand about it. What really makes agape special is that it doesn't really happen apart from God. All right? So whatever other definitions you're thinking about that you've probably heard, just know this. Agape is tied to God. That's where it happens, and that's where we see it. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. 
You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, something should stick out to you about this passage. And that is, its very description of what God did already contradicts what our human version of love is. The entire scenario sits opposed to everything we've just talked about with human love. Okay? Look at it. Look. When the scenario starts, humanity is already gone. You see that? Humanity is already gone. So, and keep in mind, right? What is sin? It is the rejection of God. It is open rebellion against him. So it starts out with humanity has already turned itself away from God. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he makes this point because this is for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Look, we don't even die for the good ones. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to. Well, I try, I, I, that statement always, well, I tried to die for them. I don't, I don't know. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very definition of this love is that you start out not being worthy of it. That's where you start. You don't deserve it, and yet it's poured out on you in extreme measures. Whereas our love seems to want something in return, the love that is spoken of here is given even though it knows we are not worthy and cannot do it justice. This is love, God's love. Now wait, aren't there limits to God's love? Isn't there... Destruction? Doesn't he flood the earth and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And doesn't God want something in return from us? I mean, is he really loving without condition? Um, God does destroy the earth by flood. But how does God, if we can talk about God's feelings, how does God feel about destroying the earth by flood? It, it devastates him. To where as soon as it's over, God says, I will never do this again. And when God looks at Sodom and Gomorrah and all these terrible things have happened and he wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham approaches God and says, God, are you sure you want to do that? What if there are 50 righteous people? And God says, you know what? You're right. (laughs) The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was what? No one was righteous there. And here's what we need to try to wrap our minds around. God loves fiercely, and ultimately God will try everything before he gives up, but he cannot make anyone receive his love. 
and he will not make anyone choose him. We see something remarkable, however, in the person of Jesus because in the end, it's, it's what is so fascinating about this story. And there are, there are people who will bring up all these, how could a God of this do that? And how could a God of love do this or that? And how can it be unconditional if there's conditions on it? But here's what we see in the person of Jesus. In the end, God does everything he possibly can to keep us from destruction. And at some point, God accepted that he would not, we would not be able to fix this on our own, and so he offered us a way out. He sent his son to us while we were still sinners. And he does that. Keep this in mind. God sends Jesus to die for us without any assurance that anyone ever will believe in him. Because God gave us free will, and so what does he know? We can choose him or not choose him. And so when Jesus goes to die for sinners, there is no guarantee that those sinners will ever say, holy smokes, thank you. (laughs) That they will recognize their need for a savior. So what do we learn about the love of God? The, the love of God is, is who he is. It's this deep expression of his care for humanity. It's not something that just happens or that he falls in and out of. This radical love that God has is a choice to love in spite of all of the reasons not to. And in some ways, it is irrational. Now, here's the challenge, and I know I need to wrap this up. So I'll do my best. We are told, specifically, in the Bible, that we are to love like God and not love like us. Jesus said in John chapter 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, look, (laughs) what Jesus is saying here is so critical for this reason. He doesn't want us to love each other like we love one another. Because if we do, no one will look at the way we treat each other and be at all impressed by that. And what have churches done throughout the centuries? Fought with one another and split from one another over all kinds of things. All kinds of things. You would be shocked at some of the kinds of things. So when Jesus is speaking to his disciples that are going to go out and establish this community. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And let me just tell you, if you're going to love people like God loves people, it's really hard to find excuses and backdoors and ways out. It's really hard to choose 
something else if you're going to love the way that God loved. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. That's a pretty big statement. There's some, there are some big things going in here, but, but look, the entire law. So he's saying like everything up that you know about God, about following him, about being God's people is summed up in one command. And guess what that command is not? It's not love God. It's not love God. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put it in a slightly different way, right? Uh, from Matthew 22. The Pharisees, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Now look, don't misread what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying this is number one and this is number two. He's not. He's saying, he is literally putting them in an order of, you have, of what you would say. But he's not putting value on them. Do you see the difference? The first is love the Lord your God, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and everything hangs on these two things. This is the hinge on which this whole thing turns. That if you love God, you are going to love your neighbors. And you're not just going to love them in the way that everyone else loves them. You are going to love them like God loves them. Which takes us back to that thing I told you to store away in that little back drawer in your brain. You don't have to know the love of God in order to love other people. But you do have to know the love of God in order to love like God loves. And that is different than just loving other people. It's different. The two are not the same. And here's the challenge for us. How do we begin to love that way? Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was talking about a lot of different things and the challenging words from the Sermon on the Mount, but he, here's what he says in verses 38 through 45. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And to us, these words are not love, they are insanity. But Jesus sets this conversation up like he does on purpose. He tells us how it is that we think. And then he tells us why our thinking is wrong. 
Because guess what? Anyone can love like everyone else loves. But not anyone can love like God. Not anyone can love like God. And here's what I know about myself, and I'm pretty sure it's probably true about you as well. I can't work my way to loving people like God loves them. There is no 12-step plan for me to love God, other people better. There are not five hot tips I can give you today to start loving like God loves. Because if I'm going to love like God loves, then I need the Holy Spirit to produce that inside of me. To where I can't help but love people the way God loves them. Because I can't help but love other people the way that God loves me. You see? The Spirit has to change me. Living inside of me, speaking to my heart and who I am. The Spirit has to change me. And when the Spirit changes me, it will produce fruit. Not the love of Bryce, but the love of God. And that is something that will change the lives of everyone I come into contact with. Because God's love is a game changer. And our willingness to love people through thick and thin, pretty and ugly, is different than what anyone else can offer them. Listen, I know sometimes we wonder what does this whole thing really have to offer someone? Their life seems so great. No one can love them like God. No one loves you like God. No one loves you like God. And when that starts to flow inside of us, we won't be able to help it. Can't stop it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the way that you love us because you love us in a way that is different. While we were still sinners, you died for us. When we had already rejected us, you sent us salvation. And or while we had rejected you, God, um, our instinct is to love in the way that we love, to look for something in return, to protect ourselves. But God, you call us to love like you love, but we need your help in doing that. So God, may we live in the full truth and realization of who you are and how you love us. May your Holy Spirit, as it lives inside of us, begin to produce 
this fruit of love. Not that we would love everyone as anyone can, but that we would love as only you can. And God, we don't know what that looks like or what situation or scenario we're going to be put in, but help the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us and to show us the way to do this. That through us, the world will be changed because of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together. My hope is built.